Welcome to IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Andrea Pride. And in today's update, um, I have our return guest, Karsten Gensauge, who's going to tell us about the issues that were discussed at the IFRS Interpretations Committee meeting on the 8th and 9th of June. So welcome back, Karsten. Glad to be back. So we have some exciting topics on the agenda today, including new submissions on a specific ECB financing program that's available to banks in Europe and on the accounting for power purchase contracts involving the transfer of renewable energy credits that are becoming more and more common in many parts of the world. But before I start, could I just have a quick reminder to listeners that for any agenda decision that the committee votes to finalise, this is going to be subject to a non-objection by the board under the revised due process handbook. So the agenda decisions we are going to be discussing today are still preliminary. They're subject to board approval and the official IFRIC update will only be available once that approval has been attained. So depending on when you're listening to this podcast, you might even be hearing from us the latest insights from the IFRIC meeting before that IFRIC update is even published. With that said, on the first day, Karsten, there were comments considered on two tentative agenda decisions, costs necessary to sell inventories and the preparation of financial statements when an entity is no longer a going concern. And we've talked about these topics before um, in our last February IFRIC update in podcast 104. But now at this meeting, the committee considered the comment letters on those two tentative agenda decisions. So Karsten, could you give us a brief recap of the issue and how the committee responded to those comment letters, maybe starting with the costs necessary to sell inventories? Yeah, sure. So just as a quick reminder, this issue was around the submission that was asked about the costs an entity includes as the estimated cost necessary to make the sale when determining the net realizable value of inventories. In particular, the request asked whether an entity includes all costs necessary to make the sale or only those that are incremental to the sale of, of an inventory item. Now, in the TED that was issued following the February IFRIC meeting, the committee essentially said that when estimating the cost necessary to make the sale, the requirements in IS2 do not allow to limit such costs only to those that are incremental, thereby potentially excluding costs the entity must incur to sell its inventories, but that are not incremental to a particular sale. The TED also said that an entity uses its judgment to determine which costs are necessary to make the sale, considering its specific facts and circumstances. So essentially, in simplified terms, the agenda decision would clarify that the cost to be included in the cost necessary to make the sale could be more than just the incremental costs. But, but what I think is also quite interesting is what the agenda decision does not say. It does not define or explain what is meant by incremental costs, nor does it identify which specific costs should be included in the cost necessary to make the sale. And it certainly does not say that IS2 would require a full cost approach in estimating the cost necessary to make the sale. So I think this means that in practice, there would still be quite a bit of judgment involved for entities when determining which costs to include exactly when estimating the cost necessary to make the sale. Quite frankly, there's just very little guidance on, in IS2 on this matter. And as a result, my sense is that, that there continues to be quite some judgment involved in terms of the approaches that would likely be acceptable in practice. Now, with regards to the comment letters, some respondents disagreed and said that in their view, 
it would also be acceptable to include only incremental costs and then there's costs necessary to make the sale. But most respondents agreed with the committee's analysis and, co and conclusions in the tentative agenda decision. And so after some debate, the committee voted to finalize the agenda decision essentially unchanged from the TED. So some diversity will still remain because of the judgments then? That's right. So the next TAD that was finalised was the preparation of financial statements when an entity is no longer a going concern. Again, could you give us a recap of the issue, remind us what, we, what the issue was about and then what the committee decided to do? Sure. So we already covered this in quite a bit of detail in the February podcast, so I will keep this very short. This was a request about the accounting applied by an entity that is no longer a going concern. So assume that management has decided that it would no longer be appropriate to present financial statements on a going concern basis. For example, because management has decided recently to liquidate the entity. Now, this request was essentially asking about the implications of this in relation to prior year numbers. So whether or not the prior year financials or the prior year comparative information should be prepared on a going concern basis or a non-going concern basis. Now, if you're interested in details, I recommend you listen into the February podcast where I explained the issue in more detail and also provided some examples to illustrate the issue. Now, at this meeting, the committee discussed the comment letters where most respondents generally agreed with the committee's analysis and conclusions. There was a bit of discussion around whether we should explicitly state in the agenda decision the practice that has been observed based on the research done by the staff in relation to the restatement of comparative information. And at the end, the committee decided to delete that wording, explaining the results from the research. But otherwise, the committee decided to issue the agenda decision essentially unchanged from the TED. Okay, thank you. So on the Wednesday then, we went, moved on to the two topics for initial consideration. So let's start with the first one, the TLTRO3 transactions. So this is quite an interesting topic, as I mentioned at the beginning, and it's also quite specific to banks only, but it's still interesting and important. So could you give us the context of what the TLR, TLTRO3 actually is? So targeted long-term refinancing operations, or TLTROs, refer to a financing that is offered by the European Central Bank to credit institutions. The objective is for the ECB to offer banks long-term funding at borrowing conditions that are intended to stimulate bank lending to the real economy. These programs have been around for a while. You know, the first series was announced back in 2014, a second series in 2016, and the third series was announced in 2019. Now, this submission is about the third series of TLTROs called TLTRO3 and how to account for this financing provided by the ECB to banks in Europe. TLTRO3 is a targeted program for which the amount a participating bank can borrow and the interest rate it pays on each tranche within the program is linked to the volume and amount of loans it makes to non-financial corporations and households. So in other words, the interest rate a bank would pay is linked to certain lending thresholds or KPIs that are related to the bank's lending activities to non-financial institutions. What makes this even more complex is the fact that in the case of TLTRO3, the interest rate 
during certain lending periods is a negative interest rate. So at the due date, the bank would repay to the ECB an amount that is lower than the amount it would it had received upon the drawdown of a tranche. That's really interesting. Could you have a high-level overview of the issue and why it matters? Sure. You know, there are several accounting issues involved in the accounting for these programs. The first, quite fundamental question is whether the TLTRO3 tranches represent loans at a below market interest rate, and if so, whether the borrowing bank would account for the benefit applying IFRS 9, so under the financial instrument standard, or applying IS 20, i.e. the guidance for government grants. So that involves some rather tricky questions, including, for example, whether the ECB would meet the definition of a government in IS 20. There are also several other accounting questions involved. For example, how to account for a government grant, if any, how to calculate the effective interest rate, and how to account for changes in estimated cash flows in a situation like this, where the interest rate varies over time, and also the amount of interest is contingent or dependent on the bank meeting certain lending thresholds. Now, for some of these questions, the committee felt that they are not in a position to opine on those. For example, the committee felt that they could not opine on whether the ECB is a government and whether these programs contain any government grant within the scope of IS-20. However, for some of the questions raised, the TED would contain uh, some guidance. For example, around the criteria that need to be assessed in determining whether there is a government grant. In addition, the TED would also contain some guidance around the measurement of any government grant, if there is one and would also contain some guidance around the accounting for changes in estimated cash flows as a result of changes in the applicable interest rate, as well as those resulting from changes in expectations around meeting the related lending conditions or KPIs. My sense is that certainly that last bit might be quite controversial. So really interested to see what the comment letters will say on this one. Great. And given that this issue is very specific to banks, let's not go into the ins and outs of all those requirements. So I'd suggest that if you want to get more details on this, you refer to the staff paper, which will link to the talking points for more details. If I could turn now to the last topic that was discussed, which deals with the power purchase agreements in the gross pool electricity market. Um, could you maybe start by telling us what a gross pool electricity market is and what is a power purchase agreement? Okay, so, so let's start with what a gross pool electricity market is. In such a market, customers and suppliers are unable to enter into contracts directly for the purchase and sale of electricity. Instead, registered customers and suppliers make such purchases and sales via the market's electricity grid, the spot price for which is set by the market operator. So all purchases and sales of electricity are cleared through a market operator on a gross basis without the market operator taking delivery or on-selling electricity. I understand that gross pool electricity market exists in a number of territories, including the US, Korea, Singapore, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and parts of the EU. So this is quite common. Now, what is the power purchase agreement or PPA? Now, these arrangements may vary by jurisdiction, but in the fact pattern submitted, um, it's essentially a contract between a supplier of renewable energy, say a wind farm, and a customer, both of which are registered participants in the gross pool electricity market. Now, in, in the fact pattern submitted, 
the PPA swaps the spot price per megawatt of electricity the wind farm will supply to the grid for you know for the 20 year term of the contract that was the basis in the submission and it swaps the the spot price for a fixed price per megawatt which is settled net in cash so in effect the supplier receives a fixed price per megawatt for the electricity it supplies to the grid over the 20 year term of the contract and the customer settles with the supplier the difference between that fixed price and the spot price for that volume of electricity. And also the PPA would, would provide a transfer to the customer of all the renewable energy credits that accrue from use of the wind farm. Uh, so for those who are not familiar with these contracts, the term power purchase agreement may actually, may actually be a bit confusing as the sort of power purchase agreement we are looking at now actually does not involve any purchase or physical delivery of power or, or electricity to the customer. So essentially, the customer is just receiving renewable energy credits and is taking all the price risk exposure of an individual renewable energy plant, such as the wind farm. So what's the accounting issue? I understand that there were two views in the submission. Well, the, the first question that was asked in the submission is whether the customer has the right to obtain substantially all the economic benefits from use of the wind farm throughout the 20-year term of the PPA. If this is the case, then there might be a, you know, then there might be a lease that may need to be accounted for under IFRS 16, assuming that the other criteria of the lease definition are met. However, if it is concluded that the customer does not have the right to obtain substantially all of the, of the economic benefits from use of the wind farm, then there is no lease. Now, it is important to note that the sub submission was specifically limited to this question only, and the committee did not consider other questions in this respect. So for example, whether the customer may need to consolidate the supplier or whether the parties may need to account for the PPA arrangement as a derivative with any changes in the fair value of the derivative hitting P&L across the 20-year contract term. So there were essentially two views in the paper. The first view was that in, on the submission, the first view was that in this transaction, the customer does have the right to abstain substantially all the economic benefits from use of the wind farm. This view would be based on either looking at the PPA on a combined basis with the electricity market transaction, or just based on the PPA contract on its own. Proponents of this first view argue that the market operator is essentially acting as an agent, and that as a result of the terms of the PPA, the customer would economically be in a similar position as if there was physical delivery of the electricity or, or a requirement to purchase all of the electricity from the wind farm for a fixed price per megawatt. Now, the second view was essentially that the PPA does not provide the customer with substantially all of the economic benefits from use of the wind farm. Arguments for the second view include that there's no basis in, in this fact pattern to combine the PPA with any electricity purchases of the customer, and that even if it may be expected that the customer will purchase at least the electricity produced by the wind farm through the grid, that there's no contractual right or no obligation of the customer to actually obtain any of the electricity produced by the wind farm. Okay, and I understand that the committee decided not to add a standard setting project to the work plan, but instead to issue a tentative agenda de decision. Could you tell us why? Well, 
this topic wasn't much controversial at all when we discussed it, and the committee quite unanimously supported the second view. That is that the customer does not have the right to obtain substantially all of the economic benefits from use of the wind farm, and so that there is no lease in this fact pattern. So maybe just a few final personal remarks. So, so even though the committee focused on this question only and did not address other related questions, I would encourage people to also consider other related issues, including whether the customer may, may potentially need to consolidate the supplier and also whether the PPA may need to be accounted for as a derivative with all changes in fair value of the derivative over the 20-year term going through P&L. My personal view is that it would seem that there would be a derivative to be accounted for under IFRS 9, which may potentially create very significant P&L volatility. This wasn't analyzed by the staff or discussed by the committee in any detail. So this really is just a personal observation and recommendation to raise awareness and to encourage people to keep this aspect in mind as well if they're dealing with these types of fact patterns. Okay, thank you for that reminder. So what happens next? When will the committee next talk about these issues? Well, I, I expect that the proposed final agenda decisions will make it on the board agenda in June. So assuming the board does not object, I would expect the agenda decisions on costs necessary to sell inventories and on preparation of financial statements when an entity is no longer going concern should be published at the end of June, shortly after the board meeting. For the tentative agenda decisions, as always, we will give st stakeholders an opportunity to respond. And so we will next talk about TLTRO and power purchase agreements sometimes after the summer break. So, so I think we will pick this up either in the September IFRIC meeting or on the one after that, which is scheduled in late November and early December. Okay, so time to get those comment letters in and we look forward to reading what constituents have to say about those tentative agenda decisions. Karsten, thank you very much. I think that also tells me that we're next going to have you on IFRS talks after the September IFRIC meeting. But in the meantime, to all our listeners, thank you for listening. Stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Music